Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, September 7, 2012. This is episode 976 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. And that means that we're going to be taking your calls to 866-65-THINK. I have 10 of them lined up. Might be 11. I'm going to see. Uh, I've got an internet issue today. And if I can get the internet back on before I'm finished recording today's show, we might hear from one of our expert council members today that's up in the air right now because their answer is sitting on my email server. And right now I can't pull it down because somebody took out a telephone pole or something like that. And uh, internet is down for the area. But I should be back up before we're done today. And hopefully I can get that response for you. Uh, but we have a bunch of great calls today. I do have to kind of come down on some folks, though. I'm gonna just trying to help you guys. I don't want anybody to feel bad about this, but I had to really work to get 10 calls this week. Usually I have way more than I can cover. Uh, I've cleared out about all the recent calls. There were quite a few callers this week that called in that ran on and on and on for three minutes, which is how long the recorder will let you go. Got till the end, got cut off, called back in, ran on for another three minutes, and really didn't get to their point or their question in that entire six-minute period. Sorry, I can't use your call if you do that. Uh, I'd like to help you guys. And again, I'm not picking on you. This is what I would like you to do. If you're going to call in, uh, and if you're a person that might have this issue, uh, write your question down. Just write your question down in one freaking sentence with a question mark at the end of it. Or if you're calling to make a comment, write your comment down with a period at the end of it. At the most, do your question or your comment in two sentences. And then call in and say that first, and then tell me anything else you think I need to know. And I promise you it'll go better, and you'll be more likely to get on the other. And another thing, I, I, I say it once in a while, I'm not picking on anybody, but come on, man, don't call with the window down. Don't call on smoke break while the guy's running the weed whacker. And make sure you have some bars on your cell phone. And then one more for you guys today, and I don't mean to pick on anybody, but listen, if your call sounds like this, you're talking to me, and all of a sudden I hear you do this, and you can't really be heard anymore because... All of a sudden, you're so quiet like this, and then all of a sudden, you come back around like this, and then I can hear you really loud and clear. Uh, I can only do so much to equalize a call like that, and generally speaking, I discard them. There were several this week, and I imagine those are people that you have the cell phone, and you're turning your head away from it, or I don't know, you're on speaker, and you put your hand over it. I don't know, but you got to give me a clear call with reason. I think can level some stuff for you, but it can't be extreme. It makes it very difficult to fix. It makes it hard for you to be heard. And please make sure you articulate words fully so I can understand them. I had another call this week. A guy wanted to know what I thought about. I don't know. Because the one thing he wanted to know, like when he got to it, he just like garbled the word. And I listened to it like 14 times and I could not figure out what he was asking. So try to be clear and concise direct, and I'll try to get you on the air. The good news, because we had this issue, there's a lot of space available for next week's call-in show. So if you call in in the next week, you have probably, I'd say, 50-50 or better odds, if you do what I just said, to getting on the show next week and getting your question answered or your point made. All right, before we take your calls to 866-65-THINK, and that is the number to call, 866-65-THINK. Let's take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, you know what? Having a gun is great. Having ammo is great. But having training with those two things is even better. In fact, it makes you able to use them if you need to. Frank Sharp Jr. and Fortress Defense Consultant offers some of the best training you can get anywhere under the sun, and uh, you can go see him. 
and uh, have training with them up at his school. Uh, or you can give them a call and say, hey, I'd like you to come here and do some training for us here. You're going to want to have maybe half a dozen guys put together or more for, for that type of training. But they will travel to train you. They'll even come out if you have uh, a homestead or something like that, and you're putting together a group and you want to know how to fortify your defenses. They'll give you that kind of consulting as well. And hell, they'll also teach you how to heal. Uh, they have first aid training to go along with uh, defensive training. And that's important. If you're going to carry an implement capable of doing harm and taking a life, you also have a responsibility to know how to save lives. And please remember that if you're ever involved in an active shooter, shooter situation, even if everything works out in the end, even if you take out the bad guy and you're not harmed and the bad guy's gone on to the Dirt Nap Society for life, there could still be somebody else wounded there. And as a responder, a first responder in that situation, you need to know how to help people, not just how to hurt people. Frank Sharp Jr. and Fortress Defense Consultants will teach you how to do both. Check them out today. Next up today, Berkey Guy. Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from Jeff? Berkey Water Filtration Systems. Of course, he's the Berkey Guy. He's got a lot of other really great, really cool products, too. You can check them out at Directive21.com. Remember, Jeff will be at the Self-Reliance Expo in Hickory, North Carolina, as part of our special panel of guests. You get to meet him there. But why should you buy a Berkey from Jeff? I mean, you can buy a Berkey just about anywhere today. The Berkey Guy. Why would you buy from anybody but the Berkey guy? Why would you buy from anybody other than the guy that's been supporting this show for three and a half years now and has already said when another contractor news they'll do it for another year uh, and, and make it you know a, a fifth year of support? Uh, why would you buy from anybody but the guy that has had to stand up to the complaints of this audience for anything going wrong, usually because it was the United States mail or somebody like that that screwed something up and has always made it right? Why would you go outside of the fold of the guy that's taking care of you when you're ready to buy that Berkey or buy filters for your Berkey? I don't know the answer because my answer would be go to the Berkey guy. You can do that by going to Directive21.com, Directive21.com. Check him out today. Best way to visit Jeff, Frank, and all of our sponsors Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. You know you're dealing with an actual sponsor that's been uh, certified by our listener ad council and carries my personal endorsement. All right, next up, I didn't mention the Hickory, North Carolina Self-Reliance Expo. Hope you'll come. Uh, there'll be a link in today's show notes for uh, meetup information. And next week on Monday, I'll publish the meetups we'll be doing after hours. We have two brew pubs that we're going to be uh, setting up some after hours meetups in. One is called Amos Howard's Brew Pub, and the other one is the old Hickory Tap Room. One will be Friday night, one will be Saturday night. We'll be letting you know about that uh, again next week. But the guest list and every, all the information was published uh, on the 5th. And you can find that by going to the survivalpodcast.com. Early meetup information, all that stuff is there for you now. Hope to see lots of you guys there. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And you'll help support the show at uh, about 20 cents an episode. Discounts are a big part of it, right? You get discounts to vendors. I have a new one. I soft-launched it yesterday because they were getting the code set up. It's all ready to go now. I just had uh, Stephen uh, Scott from Terroir Seeds on. You guys seem to love him. You love his product. You love what they're doing. You love the uniqueness of the seed varieties he has. So I hit him up. I said, hey, why don't you guys, why don't you guys do a discount for my discount members? Here's what I got you. 10% off all your orders from Terroir Seeds. That sounds pretty good to begin with. But he has a discount club. And because he actually sends you stuff, he can't give it away for free. It just, it, it would be a huge loss for him to give away for free. But I think it's $30 your first year, and then it's $15 each additional year. Let me check the numbers real quick on that, make sure I'm giving you the right numbers. Yeah, that's correct. It's $30 your first year, $15 for renewal. You get a whole bunch of really cool stuff when you join. 
and then you get 20% off all of his seat orders. Well, guess what? If you're MSB, you can just get the 10% off without buying that membership. If you buy that membership, he'll combine the 10% with the 20% that membership gives you, giving you a total of 30% off all your orders from Terroir Seeds. So you got to look at that for yourself and figure out if you're going to order enough seeds that you think that's going to make sense. Uh, but if you want just a few packets every year of some unique stuff that they have, hey, 10% off. It's part of the MSB now. Uh, if you want a bigger membership, you want to support the work they're doing, you want the other stuff you get with their membership, you can get a 30% discount. That's pretty dadgone substantial. It is in the Member Support Brigade back office already. So those of you that are there, I'll put out a, an announcement with more details on it, exactly what comes with their membership and things like that. Uh, but I just wanted you guys to know that I continue to add new things to the MSB all the time. Remember, Military Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, First Responders, Active Duty or Prior Service, email me before you join the Members Brigade, and uh, I'll send you a special discount code to thank you for your service. With that, let's go ahead and take your first call. Hi, Jack. Uh, I'm out in California, and I have a dilemma. My dilemma is uh, for the about six to ten years ago, I was buying gold and silver, And I stopped buying it when prices went over a thousand on gold and twenty on silver. Uh, my dilemma is now the value of my gold and silver equal to the mortgage on my home and on our family farm. Do I sell and liquidate, or do I just keep on holding on? Uh, don't need the cash. Have good cash flow. Uh, got the gold and silver because I saw what the government was doing with uh, deflating the currency. Anyway, your thoughts would be most helpful. Thank you. Bye. Well, it's one of those things we call a nice problem to have, is it not? Now, here's a couple different things I would say. One of the big problems I think that people have when they look at something like that, they say, well, I could take this asset, uh, cash, stock, gold, silver, bonds, whatever, and convert it to currency and use it to pay off a debt for anything, that they always think about it from a standpoint of all or nothing. Do this all or, I'll do, or don't do it at all. You said your house and your farm. Well, it might make sense to do one and not the other for now if the cash flow is good. That might be another option, and I don't know if it's one that you've con considered One thing to look at, though, is you're going to pay pretty hefty tax on uh, selling the gold. And make sure that the tax that you're going to pay doesn't offset the ability to actually accomplish what you want to do. Because um, you are going to have to declare a basis and pay a tax on the gain on gold. And it can be, it, it's, it's a, a higher tax than, let's say, if you had paid, uh, if bought a gold ETF. It's not just a simple capital gains tax. So make sure you understand the tax consequences of it. But getting to the bigger part of the heart of your question that I hear in the background, and that is, is this a smart thing to do right now? Considering I have cash flow, consider I have the gold and the silver, and if I do it, I won't have it anymore, and I'll just have paid for property. Well, what did you say at the beginning of your call? I started buying gold and silver because I saw what the government was doing and the direction they were heading in. And you bought that to preserve your wealth, as I would understand it. So my question to you would be, do you feel that the government is behaving any differently today than when you originally started doing it? And if the answer is no, then that tells you that it probably makes sense to hold on 
to at least some portion of this insurance policy that you've purchased. There's a couple ways to look at this. If we look at this as a completely, um, completely from the standpoint of uh, logical uh, trading, logical profit-taking, it would make a lot of sense to say, well, I've invested $50,000, and this is now worth $500,000. And it makes sense for me to take my $450,000 profit and leave the $50,000 basis where it is. That's, that's one way we could look at it. Or to protect some level of the profit, or to at least take out the initial principal investment. These are all decisions you have to make for yourselves, guys. I mean, this is something that I, I say all the time, and I don't know if people really get it. I'm not a financial advisor, and I don't give you financial advice. The only thing I can do in these situations is give you ideas and tell you, here's all the things you could do. Here's some of my views on them. I would tell you this, though, right now. I don't feel good about the future of our economy. I don't see gold and silver going down by any significant amount. And one of the ways I would look at this is if I hold the gold and silver and continue to make these mortgage payments on probably stupid cheap interest, if you have good credit, have good assets, if you have high interest, you should have refinanced by now and gotten to a very low interest uh, rate, um, then it, to me there's a better wealth preservation strategy in continuing to hold at least some large portion of this gold and silver. Because... What I have to look at then is to say I have a 4% interest rate on a loan and I have the gold to pay it off. If gold is going to do better than 4% a year, I'm more profitable by holding the gold and not paying off the debt. And I know what people will say. Well, Jack, you would say if you were sitting on cash to go ahead and use it because if you didn't have the cash and you did have the, the property paid for, you wouldn't borrow against it to get the money out. That's true to a point. That's true to a point. But... It has a lot to do, though, with, well, what's the, what's the balance on the mortgage on these properties? If these properties, in the worst of times, are, you know, let's say the house is worth $300,000, you have an underlying mortgage on it for hundred grand. it's pretty safe. I mean, to get it to the point where that isn't safe anymore, the currency's gone anyway at that point. When you, when you go to that degree, the, so if the farm is worth a million dollars and you have a, $250,000 mortgage on it. I mean, again, you're going to a point where, God, you're going to be grateful to have that gold and silver. So I'm leaning toward retaining it or retaining a significant portion of it. I think that you might make a case for deciding which one of these properties is more important to you long term for your safety, for your survival. And my gut tells me the farm, but I don't know your situation, so it may not be. And it may make sense to pay off one and continue to pay down the debt uh, monthly on the other. That just feels like what I would do. But I wouldn't know unless I had all the information and I was in your shoes. Just some thoughts. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Steve from Southeast Idaho. Uh, just wondering what your thoughts are on birth ships or viable survival shelters. Uh, I'm just getting into the horticulture side after getting way too deep in the tactical side from my military background coming up on 10 years and just wonder what your thoughts are on that as a viable shelter Thanks. now what the caller's asking about there is called an earth ship for those that don't know this is a house that's built 
generally speaking, somewhat into the ground, somewhat above ground, and it's done using a variety of materials, but the primary construction material are old tires. And these tires are ram-packed with earth, and then they're stacked on top of each other and eventually, uh, you know, kind of basically like uh, masoned over, stuccoed over, uh, plastered over, what have you, on the inside and the outside. And they can be quite beautiful homes. They, they really can. And there's a pretty good cost savings in what you can build in them and a pretty good cost savings in how they'll function going forward. When built properly, an earthship, even in the, the desert regions, functions largely like a ship. The roof is built specifically to capture every drop of rainwater that hits it, pushes it into a cistern. That water can then be filtered and used for drinking and cleaning and things like that. And then all of that water goes into a filtration system that waters plants, generally some plants indoors, and then goes outside. And so that water gets used three or four times, depending on what the water is used for. Um, generally speaking, they stay very warm and they stay very cool uh, in summer and winter, respectively, uh, because of the earth contact and some level of underground components to the home. That makes them very affordable, very easy to heat. Uh, a wood burner, a rocket stove, anything like that, no problem keeping it warm. They stay very cool even in desert climates in the summer uh, because of, their again, the earth contact and earthen structure. Uh, so generally speaking, people don't have any need of air conditioning. I've never seen one with an air conditioner. I would think that if you had an air conditioner in one, you might somehow finagle a window unit into uh, uh, your, uh, your, your bedroom, and that would only be if you're on grid. Most of them are also built off grid. They use solar uh, and or wind power to power the majority of what they need. And because you have such a low heating and cooling requirement, it's practical to actually power the entire house off of something like solar. The issue being that because of the way they're designed with this kind of stucco masonry over top of them, and because of the way they're designed to use passive cooling, they're, they're much more effective in a dry climate than a wet climate. So, so that's part of what you have to consider. Now... I would say this, though. This is something I've said over and over again whenever I'm asked about earthships. For those that have this idea, I'm going to go find myself a source of junk tires, and you can, and you can get them for nothing or next to nothing because people have a hard time getting rid of them. They, there's a disposable a disposal fee to get rid of tires. So you can get that material. And another thing they use is concrete, glass bottles, aluminum cans, things like that in different walls. And it, they're, you know, just look them up. They're beautiful. But you think, well, I'll get all this cheap stuff and I'll build this cheap house and I'll live for, you know, no debt. Um, first thing you should do, go get a tire, any tire. And go get a pile of dirt and ram earth fill one tire and get an understanding of how much work's involved to fill one tire and then do the calculation. Most of the people I've seen build earth ships take somewhere between five and ten years to complete the project. So that's something to consider. Uh, there might be other forms of alternative construction that, that work better. I would love to see somebody build some sort of automated device to speed up the ramp packing of tires. The other thing to consider of is if you ever want to sell it, you're pretty much in a position where you have to find somebody with the cash to buy it. Uh, because getting a mortgage on one is all but impossible. There's also building codes and things like that. Uh, last week I mentioned Pockets of Freedom. You can pull up last week's call-in show, and there's a map where you can find some places where it's easier to get approval for projects like this, but it's going to be very hard to get a loan for construction. 
Uh, and anywhere there's any level of inspection, regulation, whatever, it's hard to get these things approved for construction. That's why they're generally built off grid somewhere. You know, when you, when you do stuff off grid, One of the big advantages beyond the whole independence thing, self-reliance thing, is that you don't have to ask permission for a lot of things. You know, if you're not putting in a conventional septic system, you're not tying into county water, you're not asking the electric company to come in, you're not asking the phone company to come in, you're not doing those things, then a lot of the regulations and bullshit and things that hold up alternative housing go away. You know, but, but those things are still there and you have to ask yourself, do I want to build completely off grid? And if you do, then this is a much more viable alternative. I would just say that there's a lot of other options that are very, very cost effective, like cordwood construction, uh, like, uh, just a true underground home construction. Mike Ayler's book, uh, the $50 and up underground house would be a good resource. Uh, earth bags, a lot of these things are just easier to do and lower curves on the construction. The other thing I want to point out with any of these forms of low-cost construction, container using shipping containers, earth ships, earth bags, all of this stuff, yes, the cost of construction is much lower for the shell and maybe the interior walls. You're going to put in a wood floor, it's going to cost the same as it would in a site-built house. You're going to put in nice kitchen countertops and cabinets and things like that, it's going to cost the same. Now, if you're going to go and piece it together with recycled materials and all and kind of have this eclectic thing and you're cool with that, that's fine. And, and you can build it dirt cheap. I think you can build a really nice house for thirty dollars to $40,000 if you take that approach, especially with the Earthship uh, way. But if you're going to put enough solar on it to run, you know, all the things you're going to need to run, you're looking at another maybe 10 grand minimum if you do all the work yourself for that, the cost of a cistern. It's not as cheap as it's made out to be. It doesn't mean it's not less expensive and more self-reliant. I think they are a fine, uh, dwelling. If I had lots and lots of money and there was a beautiful earthship with everything that I wanted and it was in a place I wanted to live, would I just buck out the money and buy it? Yeah, I probably would. I'd pull out the wall and go, what do you need? Right? Um, if I was going to build my own alternative housing, I would probably be much more likely to build something along the lines of cordwood or earth bag, depending on where I'm going to live, just for timeline, ease of construction, and things like that. Like I said, if you want to explore this, I think it's a great house. And once they're built, they are an earth ship. That's what the, and they, they say that because they stand alone. Just like a ship on the ocean. They provide everything. They're all more like an earth submarine to me, like a nuclear sub, because you can just be self-sustaining for almost ever with one of them. They grow food. They harvest water. They're energy efficient. But the timeline and the effort that goes into construction, I think, is underestimated. John Bush uh, from Ad Bongo, a good friend of mine, Uh, is building one in Ecuador. He's doing it for two reasons. He states one, and I know the other one's true, whether he wants to admit it or not. Number one is it got to be just like he was like everywhere he was like wanting to buy property where he actually wanted to live in the United States. Regulation, red tape, bullshit. He said, to hell with it. I'm going to go do this in Ecuador where they don't really care. The other thing is I guarantee you he's got a whole bunch of Ecuadorians down there filling tires for him. So you could get low-cost labor, and that, that's, that's why I think that this construction methodology may be taken up more uh, in other places. Now, not so much a survival structure, 
but a cheap-to-build structure that a lot of you guys might want to explore, especially for a two- or three-room little place on a bug-out location, using pallets for, for construction. Uh, they can be made into pretty amazing things very, very affordably. So there's one more I'll throw out for you guys there today. Let's take another call. Hi, Jeff. This is Grace from Indiana. I listen to the show with my dad in the car and sometimes at home. I really like your podcast. I like the show, but it seems like a lot is just for adults to do. Is there anything kids who listen should or can be doing to be more prepared? We prepare as a family, but my parents do most things. Would you be able to do a show just for kids who listen? Thanks. Grace. Well, there's one of the most uh, honored calls I've ever had when you have a kiddo call in like that. Thank you uh, for calling in, honey. Uh, let me see if I can answer some of that for you. Uh, first of all, the, the show is for adults. I, I'm, I'm glad that some parents can see past the occasional four-letter word and allow their kids to listen. I'm glad that some parents simply just listen to episodes and go, this one's for kids and this one's for not, and let them listen. And what age parents choose to let that happen is uh, is on their own. But it's an adult show. Uh, done at an adult level for an adult audience as a primary audience. So some of the topics are going to be kind of high level, economics and politics and things like that that kids generally have a little interest in, but not so much. So that's going to be an issue, but I'm glad you listen and I'm glad you enjoy at least some of the show. As for what kids can be doing, some of this stuff is parental responsibility. Obviously, managing the finances in your home is your mom and dad's responsibility. But I'm sure that you get an allowance, you get money from your friend, uh, not from your friends. If you have nice friends, maybe they give you some money. But you know, grandparents and, and aunts and uncles and things like that. Just children generally have some some level of an income. So one of the things you can start doing to prepare. For when you're you're a mom, you know yourself and running a household, to start managing your money today the same way you would if you were managing the house. So make sure there's a little kind of a little a little pocket of, of your money that's specifically to be saved, right? And and you don't have to worry about investing it in the typical way that we talk about when the money's in small amounts of money. You know, just a good safe place for your money. Make sure there's a little pocket of your money that's designed for giving. If you go to church, you can give it there. If not, there's plenty of great charities. Don't think because, you know, maybe it's only a little bit of money. Maybe it's, you know, $10 a, a month or $10 every three months that you can, get, you can give away. There's plenty of charities, but make sure that some of that money is there for giving. Make sure that you, you start practicing figuring out how much money you, you're going to spend. Create for yourself a little budget. This is one of the most important things you can do so that when you grow up, you can control your money instead of having your money control you. That's a huge thing. And even if you, you know, your average income is $2 a week, you can still divide it up by percentages and you can still manage it and you can still learn to control it. And I'll tell you something magical happens. When you start being really responsible with your more, your money, all of a sudden you start to find that more money comes your way. So I think that's one thing you can do. Another thing that I talk a lot about is gardening. And if your parents are gardening, get out there in the garden and learn with them. Get get a hold of some seed catalogs. You can have them sent to your house for free. Start reading and learning about all these different varieties of seeds. Take a little bit of that money and set it aside and say two or three different varieties you're going to pick out. And you're going to be completely responsible for figuring out when to plant them, when to put them out in your garden. You can do that. You can do that, and whether it's in some containers, ask them to help you put some containers together and do something like that. Start teaching yourself to grow food now 
so that when you're a mom yourself, you'll be able to teach your children to do that. Or when you're a young adult starting out, you'll be able to provide some of that for yourself. Those are two things that you can really do now, that you can do at any age to start preparing yourself for the future. Start really asking yourself, what do you want to do when you grow up? And don't be, don't be upset if you don't know the answer to that yet. That's okay. Or don't worry if that changes, but start researching what you really want to do when you grow up. That's a huge thing because one of the things that you need to focus on is that as a child, it's your parents' responsibility to prepare for a lot of some of the things that are kind of scary that we talk about on the show. As a child, it's your responsibility to start preparing yourself for growing up so that you'll be ready to assume those responsibilities. So it's good that you have parents that are prepared if there's a storm or something like that. And you need to know what they're doing and how they're doing it and how you can contribute to it. And that's honestly a conversation for you to have with them. But for your focus and what you need to be prepared for is you have this amazing future headed for you. This place where you're going to grow up and become every day a little bit more responsible for yourself, a little bit more responsible for your own future. That's where your preparedness focus needs to be. There can be some overlap with you like camping or fishing or wilderness stuff or just hiking and things like that or learning about different technologies. Those are all great, but really focus on preparing for your future preparing for your learning and your education and don't be bound by anything anybody tells you as far as to what's possible because children have one of the most important things that we tend to lose as adults as we grow older the belief that anything is possible hold on to that as long as you can the longer you do the further you take that forward the more you'll accomplish great call thanks for calling in let's take another one so this is Zach. I'm a law enforcement officer out of North Carolina. Listen to the show. The question I have for you is, um, what are your thoughts regarding the recent increase in the activity of uh, so-called sovereign citizens who often connect themselves with a prepper uh, survivalist-type mentality? By sovereign citizens, I mean uh, individuals who um, maybe are anti-government, or at least very pro uh, Second Amendment, as well as um, arguably being right right wing extremists. Um, if you could just share thoughts and um, ideas as far as what your thoughts are uh, in reference to these people, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Well, this has been a hot topic, and it's something the ACLU has really gone out of their way to completely demonize at all levels by using one of what I call the three groups within sovereign citizenship. And they focus on the third group, and they're the people that I think have ruined the dadgone word from what it actually means. And here's the three groups so we can start out. I think the largest group of people that are sovereign citizens probably don't even use the term and don't even know what it means, but I would consider myself in this group. To me, what a true sovereign citizen understands is that in a republic, the individual is the sovereign. That everything and every right and every law and every regulation stems from the individual acting in accordance with the republic's constitution and allowing government certain authorities and powers based on the discretion of the individuals within the republic through a democratic process. And that as such, 
The government does not grant a single right to the individual. The individual has the rights as a sovereign individual by their birth, by their creation. And if the government doesn't like that attitude, and if law enforcement officers don't like that attitude, frankly, tough shit. That's, that's what I think. And I think most people who aren't brainwashed by the system that don't think the Constitution is what gives them rights, they understand the Constitution protects rights, whether they would phrase it that way or not, that's how they really feel. And that group is what I would call the disorganized, simple understanding of the concept as the individual is the sovereign within a republic. And anybody that doesn't like that can, frankly, go jump. Don't care if you don't like it. That's how our government was formed. That's the constitutional basis of our government. And if you don't like it, there's plenty of places where government doesn't feel that way. The foundation of government's not that way. And you can go there. And you can be part of what they're doing. Then there's the second group. This is what I would call the moderate, organized, sovereign citizen movement. And I think it's the majority of people that are part of the sovereign citizen movement. These people take it to another level and say, not only is that the case... But we're damn well going to force the government to accept it. So we'll do things like when the government takes an action we see as unconstitutional, we'll file a lawsuit against them. They don't like it, they can fight it out in court. We'll see who wins, right? And and they will also do things that I think start to border on knucklehead like drive a car without a license and cite the right of free travel. You have the right of free travel. You have a right to drive a car without a license. You just can't do it on a public street. Or they drive without insurance, or they don't register their vehicles. All of these things I agree with in principle, but not in practice. But I would still say that people, like, if that's as far as they take it, then that's that moderate group, and they're fighting for rights, and it's up to them to do it. And anybody that doesn't like that, same thing I said about the first group. Tough crap. Tough I don't care if you don't like it. That's their rights as individuals. Now, if they get arrested for driving without a license and they end up fined or, or what have you, or it, it messes things up for them, that's their, that's their problem they have to deal with. They can make their case in a court of law, and I think most assuredly they'll lose that particular case. But there is a lot of people in government really upset about this middle group that makes some real headway through the use of lawsuits and things like that. They're filing frivolous lawsuits. You know what? Law enforcement is putting people in jail every freaking day that don't belong there. right? They put a lot of people that do and a lot of people that don't. You feel that? Fight it out. Tough crap. Then there's the third group. These are, as you said, right-wing extremists. These are the people that say, I don't have to do what any law enforcement officer in my county says other than the sheriff. While it's true that the sheriff is the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in your county, it doesn't mean that the other law enforcement officers don't have authority there, Tex. These are the people that a few of them have gone completely off the deep end and shot people and things like that. These people are crazy, and when these people violate the law, they should be collected up, sent to trial, because everybody's presumed innocent until guilty, and then sentenced to a proper period of time in prison or their such, and they should go there. Those people are not sovereign citizens. They've hijacked the name, they've ruined the name, they've damaged the name, and they make me sick to my stomach because they've ruined a perfectly good term. And scumbags like the ACLU have jumped all over this and said, see, anybody that believes that they as individual are sovereign goes into this group, this third group of whack job nuts. That group is a tiny tiny percentage of even the people that are in the organized two groups. 
I would say of the people that are, you know, call themselves a sovereign citizen, not the way I do. They mean it in this, like, I'm involved in this movement. There's probably 1% of those, 1% of those that are in this third group. And the percentage of people in the first group compared to the entire population of the country is probably less than 1%. So while law enforcement, you've been lied to about this threat, Because there's more gangbangers with AKs that want to shoot you than sovereign citizens in this nut job group that want to shoot you. It's not those people aren't a threat. It's the number and it's this, 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 this angling. And groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center, the ACLU, these groups will just use anything to further their agenda, which is more government, more control, and divide and conquer the people. So don't listen to their bullshit. If you're dealing with somebody that says to you, you don't get to arrest me and I'll shoot you if I do, it doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter that it's because he thinks he's a sovereign citizen or because he thinks he's freaking Batman. He needs to be dealt with accordingly. And if that means the, the, the guy's not going to surrender, you got to put a bullet in him, you got to put a bullet in him. Just like you would have got that's robbing a bank and comes out with guns blazing. Or somebody's defending a meth lab with an AK. You take them out. Not because he's a sovereign citizen, because he's a threat to others, and he's breaking the damn law, and he won't comply with arrest. And you use, you know, force as required for the situation. The person that says that but gives up and wants to fight it out in court, you arrest him and take him in, you charge him. The person that wants to shoot it, you, you shoot back. And, and you can't demonize this one small group to the exclusion of all these other people that, frankly, are larger numbers of dangerous people. You're going to have a lot more likelihood of dealing with somebody that's part of the Latin Kings or the Aryan Nation or MS-13 wanting to shoot at you because you're in law enforcement than you are the sovereign citizen threat that's been overblown once again by a group of people that have no legitimate purpose. That's my thoughts. You asked, so you got them. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, I have a question for uh, either you or Jeff Gleason. Um, on the survival seed bank that uh, he sells, it comes in an ammo can. I was wondering what uh, yours or his thoughts were on burying the seed can. I live in uh, central New York where it gets pretty cold uh And uh, the frost line, I believe, is around three or four feet. So if I buried it uh, below that, uh, I was wondering if it would be uh, sustainable for a while or how long it would be expected to last in uh, that condition. Uh, thanks for all you do. If I was going to bury anything in, in an ammo can, I would probably put it in at least two or three layers of plastic, uh, duct taped up, sealed up really well because it's metal and it will rust in the cold, wet ground. Okay, So that's just, first of all, I'd make sure you got below the frost line, as you mentioned. I don't know that you have to go three feet to pull that off in New York State. Uh, I really don't think it's quite that far. I think two feet of cover would probably do it. But, you know, you find out based on your local area and things like that for yourself. Uh, but I don't think it's necessary. I, I, I don't really see the point. Um, if you have a bug out location or something like that and you want to store a bunch of seeds there, that would be one way to do it. But I think the problem with the whole seed bank thing is quite honestly, uh, people put it together as a product and then people thought, well, this is something that's not that expensive that I can go ahead and buy and I can have it for the future. And it's really not that 
great of an idea. Just, just frankly, the more and more I think about it, the less of a great idea I think it's going to be. Um, I have one of Jeff's seed banks, and I've had it for three years. And I've actually two of them I have, and I've continued to open packages randomly over time. And at three and four years into it, I have to say I'm getting really good germination rates out of everything except the alliums. Uh, your onions and things like that tend to decline in germination rapidly, no matter how well packaged they are. Uh, and what highly uh, technical methodology have I used to preserve these things into this this four-year range and still get good germination? Uh, they're sitting on an ammo can underneath my bed. I mean, look, um, it would be great if we all had, you know, a, a nice cold cave that we could store, you know, tons of seeds in and things like that. But if you ask any seed provider, the most important thing in doing business and providing good quality seed to their customers, they're going to tell you continuously growing out new crops of seed. And the best way that we can make our seed banks viable and last a long time is to be on at least at minimum a three-year rotation, a two-year rotation is better, of actually growing everything that we're saving. And... So that means that no seed that you're growing out for another crop of seed is more than two or three years old. And certain things, if you want to collect seed from, they need to be done every year. We just had uh, Stephen from from Terroir Seeds on. Um, he's uh, he said that you know the holest pumpkin seeds pretty much they're you save them for a year and, you're, and you got to grow them again. Uh, he mentioned the alliums as well. So there are a few things that we need to be doing annually. And if we can do something annually, we should. And we can even grow smaller crops of different things in different years and still get high seed yields. Or we need to be replacing them with fresh seed. I think this is the best way to ensure long-term viability of good quality reproducible heirloom seed. Burying an ammo can in the ground is fine. It won't hurt anything. And honest to God, if you dig it up five years from now, uh, you'll probably get pretty good germination rates. And even if you, your germination rate falls to 50%, Those seed banks that you buy like that have so many dadgone seeds in them that you can afford a 50% germination rate. We generally plant two seeds to a hole or three seeds or four seeds to a hole anyway and thin out seedlings as they come up. So if you did three seedlings to seeds to a hole and you got a 50% germination rate, you're pretty much going to still end up with a plant everywhere you want one. So it works. Just don't over-rely on it. And please, above all, with seed banks. Please don't not garden at all, never grow anything, buy a couple seed banks, bury them in the ground and think, well, when the shit hits the fan, I'm going to dig them up and grow a garden. Because you're going to starve if you do that. You've got to develop the skill. The skill is as important as the seeds. And I think, again, the best way to ensure viable seed stocks is growing out your own and what you can't grow out replacing. And I would try to keep my seeds three years or fresher. Uh, that is the best thing you can do. It's nice that they do this, you know sealing and desiccants and all this other stuff with these seed banks. But I can tell you that I've saved a lot of seeds in just little Ziploc bags and what have you, labeled with a little label tape, thrown into an ammo can or thrown into a cigar box, and three and four years later plant them and get decent germination. Remember, it's not as complex as the people selling seed banks are making it. Some of them are really good deals for the amount of seed, the variety of seed, the quality of seed, and yes, the packaging that you get. But we can all develop the majority of our seed stocks ourselves uh, with individual purchases and growing out our own stocks, and that's probably the smartest way to do it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Tommy from Las Vegas, Nevada. 
Please call and I have one question and a comment, actually. So we'll start off with the question. The question is, when people are prepping and they have, uh, trying to have to get long-term food storage and they're kind of starting with closet prepping or anything like that and they just want to go to the store and buy a lot of canned, uh, the canned goods, whether it be corn or anything like that or some fruits, I mean, do you really listen to the shelf life on those if you keep them in a dry, cool area, for example, your closet, or they've seen those store for many more years than what it says? Um, that's the question. Also, the comment, I, like I said, I'm from Las Vegas, Nevada, and I was, me and my fiance just attended the Survival Expo, and it was so awesome because I was able to, I listen to you like every day religiously, and it was awesome because I was able to actually meet just by the name and by the voice. I met Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, which was awesome, and we were sitting there talking for like 30 minutes and sharing our love for the Survival Podcast, and I met a, a bunch of other people there who, who were part of the podcast community. And it was just awesome. And I also met the Berkey guy, talked to the Berkey guy. Um, it was just really cool, you know, get some information and things like that. So just kind of networking around and growing more in the community is awesome. So I just wanted to thank you for everything you do, Jack, and hope to hear from you. Bye-bye. Well, starting out with the Vegas event, I was actually asked to speak at that event. I required a fee and travel expenses, which they said they were willing to do. Um, a month went by without the arrangements being made, and then I received a communication from them asking if I'd be interested in speaking at the event. Um, I said, we got to square this away by Friday, guys. This was on like a Wednesday, and I didn't hear from them until Monday of the next week, and we were only two weeks out from the event at that. And I said, you know what, guys, I, I can't do that event for you guys this year. You guys need to square your stuff away. And if you're going to run this event again, uh, get in touch with me and I might do it in the future. So that's why I wasn't there, even though I was briefly listed on their website. It took them two weeks to get my name off their site after I told them, I'm not coming, take my name off the site. So the people running that event, I think it was the first time they did one. And I think there was a learning curve. And hearing back from some of the people that did exhibit there, the attendance was nowhere near what was promised. Uh, but I think they're good people, and I think they are doing a good event, and I think that they'll get better in the future. I didn't like it being termed the 2012 Survival Expo with all the exploding crap on their sites. I sent them some feedback on that. Maybe they'll turn it into something a little bit more mainstream going forward, uh, especially since the 2013 Survival Expo won't be able to have the same mainstream marketing now, will it? But I'm really glad to hear that a lot of you guys went, even though I wasn't there and met each other. I think it's really important. And these events like this, I think if there's one in your area, you should go. And uh, look for other TSP members. You'll probably find them there and start building your own communities. Now, on the canned food question. No, I do not believe the expiration date on cans of food. But when you start looking at cans of food that are two years past it, uh, it's time to either eat that stuff, donate it, or get rid of it. Um, canned food does degrade in quality and flavor over time. Uh, but it's probably not going to go, you know, bad. And if it was 10 years old and you ate it, you probably would be just fine, but it would probably taste like crap. Uh, more so than canned food does anyway. So my instincts with canned food is you should probably only be buying canned food that you're going to use at least somewhat regularly. Eating what you store, storing what you eat. If you have enough canned food to last yourself I don't know, two years at the rate you use. Because I know a lot of us don't really like canned, especially commercially canned food. We're talking, you know, regular store-bought stuff, right? So we try to minimize how much of that we use. Because it's not the best quality stuff, but it is food. And maybe that actually gives you 30 days of usable food in a time where you're really relying on it. And some of that stuff's going six months, a year past before you get to it. That's okay. But start, you know, keep an eye on that. 
And when it starts to kind of really go, you know, beyond that date quite a bit, go ahead and use it up. Focus on that particular item and maybe reduce your stock in it if you're having trouble getting rid of it. But no, um, you got to think about it this way. Let's say the expiration date on a can of food is September 6, 2012. Well, today's September 7, 2012. Do you really think that, like, the, the food inside the can knows, oh, it's time to go bad now, <clears throat> And just, you know, I mean, there's absolutely no way that they could know on what particular date the food was no longer viable or would no longer be fresh or possibly pose some sort of a health risk. The thing with commercially canned food is if it goes bad, it bulges out. If it ain't bulged out, there's nothing in there that's going to hurt you. It's just what's the quality of the food. And I've, you know, messed around with this a little bit. And some things seem, you know, I've canned corn. You mentioned corn. I've opened canned corn that's five years past its expiration date. I don't know if it's because it's GMO corn or what, but I'll tell you if I gave you a spoonful of five-year-old corn and a spoonful of brand-new off-the-shelf corn and you ate both of them, you probably wouldn't notice a dadgone bit of difference. But I've done some other things like soups and all that they just, their textures change. They seem thicker than they should, things like that. So there is a degrading there. And... If you know, let's, let's face it. If you're in a survival mode, you'll eat it and you're gonna survive. But the nutrient load declines as well. It's already poor there. So uh, I wouldn't religiously follow the expiration date on the canned food, but I would try to at least not have any more stock in that type of food stock than you can use up in a two-year period and rotate it out at that period. Uh, I think that makes a lot more sense. If you just want to like fill up a, a, a pantry at a bug-out location with it, it is a cheap way to put a lot of food away quick. Uh, and it probably will last a long time, but it probably makes sense to be doing it even in that, some rotation, some charity giving, something like that. Uh, but, but certainly, with just about any food, don't think that the day that it says it's bad, it's gone bad. I, I think that we've been conditioned by the supermarket mentality to think that way, and it just doesn't make any sense at all. A hundred years ago, nothing had an expiration date on it. When it tasted bad, it wasn't good anymore. When it got stale, it wasn't good anymore. And people still did stuff with it. When bread got stale, we made stuffing or bread pudding. Right? So we got to start thinking that way again, especially for some of the things that we're headed for. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. How you doing? This is Drew Wright from Naples, Florida. I have a 457 deferred compensation plan. and I was wondering if you knew anything about... Uh, gold and holding physical gold somewhere to be uh, done. I know it's through 401ks and such, but what does a 457 offer? I'm with Nationwide. They offer nothing, and I uh, like to see about moving it. Um, I know there's certain restrictions and penalties, but what do you know about uh, 457 deferred compensation and who offers anything in gold? Not certificates, GFIs, I think, uh, is what they are, but something that holds it in physical or delivers me the gold. All right, thank you very much. Bye. Okay, here's here's the deal on 457. So 457 is a government employee or government independent contractor's version of a 401k uh, type plan or 4013b type plan, right? So what does that mean? What is what is it? What, and what what differences, if any, are there? The biggest difference is actually a huge advantage. There's one huge advantage to a 457 plan. When you put more your money into a 457, it goes tax-deferred, just like a 401k. But you can withdraw money early, before 59 and a half, from a 457 plan, 
and not pay any penalties. You do have to pay the tax, but there's no early withdrawal penalty. And if you can some way figure out how to get some options into this plan, you said they offer nothing. I don't know what that means. Um, but if you can you know, figure out some way to be able to do something with the money inside the plan, one reason you might want to leave it there is because it will leave the option open for you to suck that money out early and only pay the taxes on it, where if you've left the employment, it sounds like you have, you can roll it into an IRA. But once you roll it into the IRA, then you got to pay the penalties, get your own money out early. So that's something to consider. That's one of the biggest things to consider here. Now let's talk about gold and retirement accounts. I'm going to say this one more time. No matter how many times you guys ask, no matter how many times you guys bring different reasons for it to me, I'm going to tell you the same thing. I am not a fan of physical gold and physical silver and IRAs. And it's the only way you're going to do it is to convert the 401 or the 457 or whatever into an IRA, and then you can put the metal in there. This is what you have to do. You have to buy from a dealer that's okay, you know, got the check mark to do this. You never touch the metal. The metal goes to a storage facility and is inside your retirement account. Now, what's the problem with that? Number one, the government's eyeballing these accounts. The biggest reason we hold physical gold and silver in the first place is for insurance of our wealth. And if they're going to seize anything, they're going to seize that. And if they're going to ever try to you know, seize gold and silver, they're going to start with the easiest stuff. That people say, well, what if they, what if they seize my silver? Like, like Chris Dwayne says, they're not going to send a SWAT team in your house to get your silver dimes from under your bed. Please. But something like a whole bunch of it sitting there that can be, you know, safeguarded for the holder, right? So I do worry about the government eventually uh, taking over retirement accounts. And I, I've already told you, I think it's being done quietly by forcing at least the safe portion into more uh, municipal and, and national bonds. Uh, and I think that that's very much the case from what I've seen come back from you guys. So I... Don't recommend at all that you put IRA, 401k, 457, or outer space retirement account, new account, 10339A, into physical metal. Because the only reason to hold physical metal reasons is, one, you hold it. So you have it, you control it. Inside that account, you don't control it. It's held by somebody else. And even though there's a physical backing of metal somewhere, in reality, it's still paper creating the relationship. It's still paper. It's still paper. It's still paper. It's still paper. It's still freaking paper. They can't, I don't care how many people that want to sell you gold from Goldline or whatever tell you that it's still paper tying you to the metal. You don't have it, number one. Number two, it's the most anonymous form of wealth known to man. There's, there's, there's regulations and laws and everything like that. But in reality, if a guy has something and I want it, he wants five ounces of silver for it and I put a five ounce silver bar in his hand and he gives me whatever I want, it's anonymous okay the next reason it's portable i can put enough gold to support a family for for six months in the back of a belt buckle for god's sakes and go anywhere in the world with it it's universally valuable those are the three reasons we hold the metal physically none of them exist None of them exist in a retirement account. They don't exist. I'm going to say it one more time. No matter how much the people try to tell you that it's not the case, it's still only paper. 
Sure, your silver bars that you bought from Atmex go to some secure facility and they're held there, but you don't have them. So, if I was dead set on physical metal, I would take the hit for whatever portion of this account that I need to, and I would get the money out, and I would buy the metal. And in your case, since you can take the money out and only pay the taxes on it, I'd be even more tempted to do that. If there's some portion of it you want to continue to manage as a long-term tax-deferred account, I would leave it in there and try to figure out how to do it in there. And if you can't, then and only then would I roll it to an IRA. This also has a lot to do with your age. If you're 55, yeah, you go ahead and roll it to an IRA. Do whatever you want. Even if you like don't agree with anything I said. If you're 55 and you want to hold silver in your IRA, roll it to an IRA, go through a qualified broker and do it. Even though I think you're wrong and I think it's a mistake, you can go ahead and do it. If you're 40 and you got 19 and a half years, I'd think really very carefully before you give up the early withdrawal penalty advantage you have with a 457. So that's my thoughts on it. But I'm going to say this again because I keep getting the question. I do not recommend physical metal inside an IRA, period, the end, over, out, done. No more. All right? I'll have to do it again because, to be fair, some of you have never heard me say it before. But no matter what case you make to me, I'm going to tell you those three things are the three reasons I hold metal. Anonymous, portable, and because I have my hands on it. None of those exist with an IRA. It's still, excuse me, it's still paper. If I wanted to hold silver inside an IRA, I would use an ETF. And thanks to one of the really great listeners out there, I would hold the, 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 um, the ETF S-I-V-R, and that is, I would say that's as good as physical metal in an IRA. The only thing you could do to make S-I-V-R more above board is have them physically deliver the metal to you. Well, there you go, right? So you're right back into the same place. The gold ETFs, I don't know of anything quite as secure from a standpoint of the metal backing the paper as I do with SIVR. SLV is the, the big silver ETF that everybody uses and talks about, but there's so much phony manipulation behind that, and I believe it's in the gold ETFs as well. So the safest, if there is such a thing, metal ETF that I'm aware of is SIVR. If anybody knows of a gold one that functions like SIVR, let me know. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Rich from uh, North Carolina. I have a question about 90% silver after listening to Greg's show the other day. I'm currently buying Silver Eagles, brand new uncirculated ones, obviously the top quality silver that's available. But I also believe I need to start getting some 90% silver. My question there is that when you look at a location like Apmex, they have all different grades. Some are culls, some are worse than culls. Some are better than average. From a, a bartering perspective and just a low-scale investing per, perspective, silver is silver. So I'm wondering, is there a reason in one direction or the other to buy some 90% rolls or individual pieces that are of the higher ratings uh, rather than just the low stuff, which is the same content for silver? Anyway, thanks for everything you do. Keep it up. Uh, in reality, silver is silver, and you're right, up to a point. So when we look at junk silver, 
there's stuff that's kind of like uns it's been circulated. It's average, and that to me, from that to a brilliant uncirculated coin, the only thing we're seeing there is pneumatic pneumatic value difference, and that's not what I'm investing for. So I really don't care. Really hard used silver where the dates are hard to read, it's really, really smooth, have actually lost some of the silver content. So if you if you had a big bag of it and you weighed a bag of average circulated and heavily circulated, the, the heavily circulated is going to weigh a lot less. So I try to buy stuff that's what you would call average circulated coinage, which means I focus on more modern coins, Franklin halves, Kennedy halves, Washington quarters, Roosevelt dimes. That's the majority of what I buy in pre uh, pre sixty five coinage because it's the most affordable. You it's generally in average circulating condition because it was all cold out of the the, the supply very very quickly in nineteen sixty from nineteen sixty five to nineteen seventy. I'd say eighty five percent of the silver coins were yanked out of circulation and stopped circulating. So the stuff that was made from let's say nineteen forty five to nineteen sixty four. 19 years, that's as long as it circulated. Where if you got a barber dollar, a barber quarter, or a standing liberty quarter, they're usually the ones that are like slicks. So I don't generally buy, I like them, especially when they're, you know, not completely slicked, uh, but I don't generally buy them in circulating condition because you just get less silver. So that's, that's where I make it. Now, the other side though is, you know, what are you paying on a premium for uncirculated versus average circulated? And, and you can make a case for spending a little bit more money because if I said to you right now, hey, you can have a silver quarter. They're both 1964 silver quarters from the same mint. There's nothing special about them. And one is old and tarnished and worn a little bit, and the other one's brand new shiny. You can just have either one you want. Which one would you take? So whether it makes sense or not, we have to acknowledge that there's a human component here that prefers these coins unscratched, unblemished, and nice and pretty, right? So that's where all the numismatic value lies. Now, when people are paying huge premiums for it, I just think it's asinine, and I won't do it. And if you're a coin collector and you like it, and it's an expensive hobby, fine. And if it makes money for you long-term, fine. But I'm not going to recommend it as an investment. But what's the real premium? If we look at an average circulated roll, of Washington quarters, $10 worth of quarters, right now on AppMex, the credit card price, $299.09. If you'll do a bank wire, it's $290. So you can save $10 by doing a check or wire versus a credit card. And if you're buying a lot of coins, it's probably worth doing. Now, if I go down to a 40-coin roll of Brilliant Uncirculated, the same coins, right? Random dates, but Brilliant Uncirculated, the credit card price is $3.12. So... It's a $12 premium, which on the individual coins, if I, if I do the math there, it's about 30 cents a coin. So is the uncirculated coin worth 30 cents more a coin? Probably. Probably because if you go to sell it at a coin shop, they'll definitely pay you 30 cents a coin better off, uh, on, on average. It's definitely more likely when you cash out, especially in small quantities, decide, hey, I need to sell a couple rolls, that you'll get a better price because they do have some collector value. Now, if things really go bad, could that collector value become meaningless? Absolutely overnight. But if things don't go bad, right, then, then it doesn't go away. And when we're looking at 30 cents a coin, 
We really think about that. So even if we bought a hundred coins, we're talking about three bucks. That's like three dollars in additional insurance for things not completely going off the rails, but going off the rails for you. And then the rest of it is a insurance premium for the whole totality. So if I'm buying from a dealer, right? When I buy from a dealer and I'm looking at a premium of thirty cents a coin, or let's look at um, my favorite thing is actually Roosevelt dimes because they're the smallest unit, so the highest divisibility. Well, the spread on a brilliant uncirculated roll of uh, Roosevelt dimes versus an average circulated roll of Roosevelt dimes is about six bucks on Atmex right now. And the site I'm talking about is Atmex, A-P-M-E-X. It's one of this. It's a site that if I'm not buying from them, I always check their pricing versus whoever I'm buying when I'm buying from a dealer because they're they're pretty solid on being right in about what everybody's selling. So I, right, the people ask me all the time, how do I know if I'm getting ripped off? Check three places. Check three places, and if one of them's way out of line from the other, something's wrong, and, and stop worrying about it. You're not getting ripped off. This is an established industry. Buy from an established person, you'll be fine. Go to eBay if you can buy from a private seller for the same or less, uh, even a couple you know dollars less than, than the dealers are selling for. You're not getting ripped off if they have you know a thousand reviews and they're all positive and one negative review because some guy's an idiot. You're not going to get ripped off. Stop worrying about getting ripped off. Different subject, but I had to say it because I get it every day. Right, so six dollars comes out on fifty coins to a roll, a five dollar roll of dimes, a twelve cent premium. Again, if I'm buying from a dealer, it's probably worth it. Now, if I'm buying, you know, a thousand dollars face value, it might not be worth the premium. But in small quantities over time, yeah, it's probably worth that little premium. Now, when we look at something totally different, we get out of these modern coins and we go to the previous. Uh, incarnations, standing liberties, and things like that. Things change, and I won't do it because it, it, the, the numbers change drastically. So, instance, looking at barber quarters, they don't even have a roll of brilliant uncirculated available right now. But uh, a fine plus grade, which is a really nice coin for the coin collector, uh, a roll of barbers is six hundred forty-one dollars. Uh, a roll of average circulated is three hundred fifteen dollars. So we're looking at doubling, more than doubling, or straight up doubling the cost. Three fifteen to six sixty, uh, doubling the cost. I'm not going to do that. Worse, I'm looking at a premium of over seven dollars a coin for the difference, for the variance. So I'm going to pay seven dollars more per coin for a higher grade coin when I'm buying it for silver value and a silver quarter right now. In you know, with all of the silver left and it's not been worn down at all, full silver melt value is about six dollars and nine cents. So the premium. On that is higher than the silver value of the coin itself, which means that coin is almost a hundred percent based on numismatic value. Where the dime, the quarter, the Washington, the Franklin, it's not a special date because there's so many of them were left in bank rolls and things like that. The 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 primary value of the coin is the silver. There's only a you know a twelve or thirty cent per coin premium in numismatic value. And that means that it's it, it's probably worth the extra money if you're buying from a place that gives you both options. If you're buying on eBay and you have some stuff that's you know average circulated and you can get a good price on it, then then buy that. That's that's kind of the way I look at it. That's a little almost a mini show there in buying pre 65 coins. Let's take a another call. Hey there, Jack. This is Russ from up in Ohio. I was just going back and I was listening to the episode where you interviewed uh, Rick Warden from Rise and Shine Rabbitry. 
and you guys mentioned making sure that you could uh, butcher the animal before you started raising them. And I had a thought, since we're getting into county fair season, a lot of fairs are going to be selling off some meat rabbits, so uh, you might want to try getting a meat rabbit and uh, making sure you can butcher it that way before you commit to getting a whole, uh, whole set of rabbits. Well, just a thought. You have a good Stay safe. Bye. I think it's a good idea, and what I have to add to it, though, is it will be easier than animals that you've raised by hand uh, in some ways because you'll have less attachment. In other ways, it'll be harder because I'm just going to go get this thing and take it home and kill it with not a lot of mental understanding over time that that's this animal's purpose, right, that this animal is designed to be slaughtered. So... Uh, I think that sometimes as hard as we think it's going to be to slaughter a flock of chickens that we've raised specifically for meat or uh, a, a group of rabbits that we've raised for meat. The other side of it is that we have this entire time when caring for the animal to understand I'm giving this animal the best life it can possibly have, far better than in any factory farm. And this animal's purpose is to be harvested. For me, it's always been a struggle, though. When I was a kid, we had a few chickens, and you know, every once in a while, we get a hen, we'd brood out some 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 birds and uh, raise them up, and and we'd end up with you know, by the time the hawks pick a couple off, we'd end up with maybe ten chickens that year that were cullable, and maybe one older hen or two, and some replacements and stuff like that. And I would just be told, my grandmother would go, "Yeah, we're having chicken tonight. Go go get one or two of you know, however many we needed. Go get a couple and take care of them." And You know, I don't think there was ever any thought given to it being difficult for me uh, because it was just, one, it was just expected. And two, I was such a hunter, you know, and it still had a little bit of, of it was still a little hard for me because as a hunter, I always feel like I earned the right to take the animal's life. I've gone out and I've had to use my skill and meet that animal in its own natural habitat And I'm not guaranteed. It's not Hunting is not killing. It's hunting. Killing is part of hunting, but it's not just killing. Slaughtering's killing. There's the, the, the chicken's not going anywhere. It can run in circles for a while. Eventually, it's going to get tired. You're going to get a hold of it, and then it's a matter of a couple quick uh, slices to the, to the neck, and it's going to bleed out. With a rabbit, we're going to do some sort of probably cervical dislocation, either a, a broomstick across the head and a quick jerk, or there's equipment that's designed where you put it in on a wall and, and give a quick jerk down, and it's it's very quick and it works. But I think it is important to accept that if you're going to raise animals for meat, that's their destiny. And there's no real beauty in death for anything. Generally, you know, they let loose of their bowels. Uh, chickens not so much, but a lot of times rabbits do and things like that. And there's, you know, no creature wants to die. So you're definitely taking a, an animal to a point, a place that it doesn't want to go. And there's a responsibility there, but I think it puts us more in touch with things. And I think it's very easy, almost too easy, to become comfortable doing it. And it's why Joel Salatin says that you shouldn't kill every day. If you, even if you have a large operation, you shouldn't kill every day. Because if you do, it gets too easy. You won't feel anything. And you should feel something. I think there's a lot of respect there. And I also want to point out, there is another option. I mean, check before you end up with a bunch of animals, right? To make sure there's a, a reasonable option near you. But in many places, you, there, it's, it's, it's quite possible for a very low fee. I mean, rabbits, I've heard a general fee of like three bucks. To basically one day out of the month decide, okay, I got ten rabbits for slaughter. 
and put them in boxes and take them down to a facility and hand the guy 30 bucks and come back you know, the next day and he'll hand you, hand you your rabbits back all professionally butchered. It is another option, and for some people it's easier. And for some, you know, when I first heard about that, I, I thought actually, you know what, this makes it, if I can find a place that will do that for that kind of a cost, this makes it much more likely that I would raise maybe 50 chickens a year. I don't mind killing 50 chickens a year, but it's a lot of work. Um, the plucking, everything else is a lot of work now. There's some other things that you can do. Like I learned up at Ben Falk's thing that they make this big chicken plucker. It looks like a washing machine. About four to six chickens, depending on size, can go in it at one time. So you scald the, the feathers. and This is, of course, after the chicken's been slaughtered. And uh, then you put it in there, and it just spins around, and the feathers come off. Well, those things are a few hundred bucks, but you can... I think he rented four cones and the machine and some other stuff for slaughter day for 30 bucks for the day. So that that's another route that you can look at. But I do think it's important that... If we're going to bring animals in for meat, that we accept what we're doing and maybe going and getting a couple animals and trying it with one or two uh, might be a better way of determining whether or not this experience is for you. But don't discount the, the component that comes with raising the animal and having time to accept there is a day that ends for this this animal. I think that's actually something that that gives a lot of people that keep animals for meat a lot of peace with it because they have time to accept what this animal's role in life is. And those that take a really, you know, like really like it's hard for you to accept slaughter by man is kinder than tooth fang and claw in the wild. And any of these animals that we use for meat in the wild would be a prey animal of some kind, especially when we look at smaller uh, animals like chickens, ducks, rabbits, and things like that. And, you know, you look at, like, the little duckies at the, the, the city parks and stuff like that, most of them never make it because they're taken down by a turtle. Those green turtles just take them out like crazy. Um, there's, no, there's no good from that death. Right, But feeding a family and having the ability to live like a duck or live like a chicken or live like a rabbit uh, and breathe fresh air and eat good food, I think, is, is, is noble, noble use of, of a life. And we can have a reverence for that life even though we're the hand that takes it. And every piece of meat that you ever put into your mouth, somebody took that life. And if it's from the mass-produced food system, it wasn't done with honor and dignity and respect was done as a job by somebody that was probably abused themselves in the system, underpaid, overworked, underappreciated, and miserable. And that describes the animal and, and, the, and the person doing the slaughtering and the delivery and everything else. And, and we really, I think, that the more we can take this responsibility on ourselves, the more we can reduce that environment as well. Let's take uh, one more call and wrap up for the day. Hey, Jack, it's Quentin here in Cincinnati, Country Root City Job on the forum. I've been looking at houses for the past few weeks, and I've been also been listening to your show for the past few weeks, and I still can't figure out whether it's a good time to buy a house or not. Um, one day I think it's great, and then I get start, turn on your show and listen, and all of a sudden you're saying bankruptcies are coming next. So I'm curious if you have any suggestions, any thoughts. Um, we're looking to spend about 40% of what I've been approved for. We're trying to live within our means. Um, 
Also, if we do go ahead to the house, would you suggest putting down the minimum for down payment or not? I'm leaning towards the minimum. Anyway, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. Thanks for a great show, and uh, look forward to hearing your answer. Bye. Okay, well, the first answer is the only person who need to determine when the right time is for someone to make a huge decision in their life, like buying a house, especially a house that's going to come more than likely with a 15- to 30-year debt behind it, is the person making the decision. So you have to make that decision for yourself. Um, I do see dark days for the U.S. economy coming. But let me put it to you a variety of ways. One, if we get like the complete desecration of the dollar, which is something that, frighteningly enough, is possible, you can't evict everybody. Can't do it. They're going to have to figure out some way to avoid that because the banks are going to have a bunch of houses they can't do anything with. You'll probably be in a better position owning than renting property. In that scenario, anyway, um, if we have runaway inflation, sometimes you, holding the debt actually works out, especially on something like real property. Um, I don't, I wouldn't bet on that, but you know, it's it, it is a possibility. The other thing is, you can't live your life based on what might happen or even what's likely to happen. If what you want is a house, then there actually might be a real big reason to get a fire lit under your ass and do it right now. Let's say this economy blows up. Right, It blows up, but it only blows up, let's say, twice as bad as 2008. And let's say you've figured out how to survive in it and at least make enough money to pay the bills. What are your odds you're going to be getting a mortgage then? Lending might really get tight in that environment. So um, what I would say is right now anybody buying a house should be buying a house they want to live in for 20 years or more. That that's what I would say. It's not that it's not a good time to buy a house, but if your plan is I'm going to buy a house and hold it for five years and let it go up in value and sell it and get some money and move into a bigger house, that is not a good plan right now. It could happen, but I would not freaking bet on it. So if you're looking at long-term ownership, this may be one of the best times to act. And as far as bankruptcies and things like that, this stuff's going to happen. You have to decide whether or not you're going to live your life the way you want to as best you can, or whether or not you're going to let fear control your your choices. Now, if you are going to buy a house right now, and you're going to buy it in a city that really is on the edge of bankruptcy, that I wouldn't do. I mean, I'd look for another place, a place with a little bit better managed economy. I would not buy a house in Los Angeles, or Harrisburg, or Chicago, or Detroit, or Philadelphia, or Honolulu right now, or any of these other cities that are really on the knife edge, right? I just wouldn't do it. The, the, the odds of things exploding there, and I wouldn't buy a house in a major metropolitan area right now either. Um, I would get to outer suburbs as a minimum. Outer suburbs of a, as a minimum. So that means that if you draw your circle around your metropolitan area, where most people live, Where that, where that population drops drastically, where there's not so many giant, you know, cookie cutter, uh, subdivisions anymore and it just kind of trails off right at that edge. That's my bare minimum I would back off to for many of these major metro areas. Now, not just due to the, the government failing it, it, there, but when the government fails, what people are going to do. But the reality is, if you're renting when this thing blows up, you're in a much less desirable position. Because if that uh, landlord decides he needs to liquidate his property, there's no guarantee you'll be able to stay there or find another place to go. 
You know, I look at it like defending a castle. And the first thing you have to do to defend your castle is have a castle. So I would right now, if what you want is home ownership, be looking for a home you want to own for 20 years or more, be looking for the right area, make sure you're smart and don't overspend. And don't bet on the value of the property going up. Bet on having a place to live for 20 years or more. And then I think any time's the right time to buy a house. If you can do it and you've got the money and you've got the cash reserves to protect yourself for at least six months if everything falls apart in your own individual life, Yeah, and again, if the if the financial end game hits, the dollar is toilet paper. Nobody wants it. Get a bunch of it and go pay your friggin' mortgage off. And if that doesn't work, I'm telling you, they can't evict even 50% of the population from their houses. They can't do it. They, it doesn't it doesn't work logistically, right? The big danger is a 2008-like event, 2008-2009-like event bigger and hits you personally. So create some level of individual insurance against that. And create a buffer. Give yourself time to breathe and adjust. The end game comes, they can try to push me out of my house. We'll see how that works out for them. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you